Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how's it going? It's going. It's going, David. (laughs) Thank you for that, Tim. I asked him to sing on the air. (laughs) And so I just readily complied. You did. Thank you for that. I forgot that we. I forgot this was the uh, the episode where Tim sings. This is the episode where Tim sings. Everything. Please tell me there's jazz hands happening right now. Oh, there has to jazz be. Happening. Well, Tim does jazz hands just when he's talking. So. True. But now it's with music. <laughs> it's hey, the mo- David. I want to hear. I want to hear how your trip to the coast was. Oh yes. So um, I got back yesterday from a week. In the Outer Banks, so the Outer Banks are northern North Carolina, up towards Virginia, and uh, or Loverland, as they say, and uh, <laughs> and um, to say that sarcastically, that's like against the tourism board. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. So, um, yeah, so uh, it was the first time that I have done no work for more than 48 hours. Actually, probably for 48 hours in like two years. So I actually went wow. two days where I didn't do any work. That How'd that feel? Weird. Yeah. <laughs> was it? I mean, was it relaxing, or did you just feel anxious about it? Mm. Well, no, it was fine until I started getting all kinds of people started sending me all kinds of problems. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> hey, uh, we're panicking about this. What do we do? Um, no, it was it was uh, it was good. It was great. Um, we went with my wife's family, extended family, so there were like 15 of us in the in a beach house, and we were there for Sunday to Sunday. It was it was great. It was nice. Um, the weather was like the most of the week. It was low 80s and sunny, and then the last couple of days, very windy and pretty cold, like 60s. I mean, for the beach, you know, like you don't want to go in the water when it's 65 degrees and windy. Um, at least I don't. Um, so it was, but it was really nice and. Uh, it was yeah it was it was weird it was weird to not do any work for a solid 48 hours of that time except post podcasts um well i just want you to know that while you were gone i went into the office and it it was like a scene from animal house i mean just (laughs) yeah oh i believe it (laughs) i'm totally joking like you know you know the ra is out let's have a wild party no i believe it i totally believe it um (laughs) The only we did have some illnesses go through the go through things, but other than that, it was you know my my middle son got strep throat while we were there, which was a bummer. Oh no! So I ended up one morning. I ended up we got him there. We got him to the urgent care, which was thirty minutes away, pretty fast. So, so he he you know kids are resilient. They don't really you know we got him some we got him the the uh, antibiotic and some children's Motrin, and he was cool. So he. Later that day, he went and went on a wild horse tour on a, on a big Hummer, so he was happy. <laughs> uh, but you know, he had to sleep. Quick recovery. Had to sleep. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I, kids are just—they don't—they don't. You know, as long as they're not like in a lot of pain, they just manage to figure it out. We get sick and we're like, "Oh, I feel left. I, I feel lethargy. Someone <laughs> shoot me." <laughs> no, I'm a mother. I don't ever get to say that. <laughs> no, but you can feel it. I could feel it. I got to yeah. suck it up and carry on. I'm yeah. more like the kid, you know, I've just got to like take the children's Motrin and carry on. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, anyway, we are we are here to talk about Gilead. We are here to talk about pages one twenty eight to one sixty. So we are we are more than halfway, I believe, now. And then you know we'll be we'll wrap it up in the next couple episodes. And then, of course, just as a reminder, we're going to discuss Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, for a couple episodes there in October, November, and then we will lead that. That will lead into the forthcoming movie, and I want to do an episode uh, discussing that adapt adaptation. So that I think that'll be a fun little change. That of, will be that fun. will be fun change of pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be good. Yeah, I got a copy. Of, I got a new copy of that book actually from my mother-in-law over the trip. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah. So. I couldn't find mine. I have a whole box of Agatha Christie novels in my parents' garage, but I couldn't. Find, that was the one I couldn't find. <laughs> so I, like, I guess I'm gonna have to buy it. And then my wife saw that my mother-in-law had had one around, so she gave me. She gave it to me. It looked brand new, never used. So it's worked out great. Um, so that that's coming down the pipeline. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we need to talk about. Angelina, you have a uh, a webinar coming up, don't you? A, I do. Tell, tell us. Hansel and Gretel. Yeah, Hansel and Gretel. And that is, when is that? That is September 26th, and it's still plenty of time to uh, enroll for that. That's $10, and you can sign up over at our website, uh, org. There's a calendar page for that. You can find the link on Facebook as well. Um, it's ten dollars, and I can almost guarantee there's like eight fifty worth of content I'm gonna give. <laughs> well, I mean, how, you can't ever promise more than that. Like that's a pretty good ratio, as far as I'm concerned. It is right. Eighty five percent. That's like a B. Come on. Yeah. I mean, what more do you want from a person? I'm, I'm gonna put in some solid B work on this <laughs> webinar. <laughs> that's my promise to you. <laughs> I mean, if people were paying twelve fifty, then you'd give them ten bucks worth. So. Exactly. That's how it works. I mean, you get what you pay for. Exactly. Taxes, man. The government took its share. Exactly. And so this is all you're going to get. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so so that's coming up September 26th. Um, we also have a conference going on in Colorado. That's going to be in October. And Tim's going to be speaking at that. So if you want to learn we learn more about that, there's a few spots left. Um, Colorado oh, that Springs. Looks like a crazy, beautiful, scenic thing y'all got going I on there. I can't believe what? it. Yeah, we're the gorgeous. The Glen Iries, is that how you pronounce it? I think it it's Glen Erie, but it's Glen over. Eerie? I think I, that's what someone told me, but I don't know. That could uh-huh. that could be that could be a, could be a blatant lie. I don't know. They could have been making me want me to look bad on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the Obsessed. yeah, it's right next to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. So the views will be incredible. Um, the speaker should be incredible because um, Tim's going to be there, obviously. And um, yeah, who else though? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, who another who else is Greg Wilbur, which leads me into our sponsor because Greg oh, Wilbur is Greg Wilbur is the president of New College Franklin in Franklin, Tennessee, and they have been sponsoring the Cersei Podcast Network, and uh, we are of course really really glad to be partnering with them. Um, in an ongoing way, he's been speaking at a couple conferences in a row now, and they've been. Um, setting up tables at the conference and all that. And they're going to do the same thing in Colorado. And if you have been trying to, to homeschool or, you know, raise your kids or teach in a school and, you know, following a classical pattern, then I think probably one of the things that most troubles you or concerns you about college is that whoever your, your kids go to for, for, you know, their higher education choice probably doesn't have the same goals in mind, but with new college, Franklin, hopefully um, you can find the kind of college option for your family or your school that does have the same goals in mind. Um, so they're interested in promoting Christian worldview and the classical seven liberal arts 
um, in, in a setting that promotes conversation and dialogue and really great community. So if you are interested in all those things, head over to newcollegefranklin.org and check out uh, one of their upcoming student prospective student weekends or just set one up There's for yourself. There's one at the end of this month, and, and I, I will be speaking at it. I heard that. Yeah, I think you told maybe <laughs> yeah. you might. Yeah. So, I think I mentioned it on the last episode in the part that got cut off, mysteriously disappeared. I yeah. don't know. But... <laughs> <laughs> My no. shameless self-promotion never made it to the air is what I'm trying to say. It actually was <laughs> mysterious. We don't know how it happened. Like We literally do not know how it happened. So It just evaporated? Well, remember <laughs> Apparently we had... all of our banter disappeared. Remember all our computer problems last week? Yeah, the first 12 minutes of the show didn't show up. So The best 12 minutes. Take my word for that. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of mystery, that does bring us to this week's um, episode of Close Reads. Because we're here to talk about Gilead and much of this episode. Before we start the book, I have to give a shout out to a close reader. Can okay. I do that? Yes, so, you may. I had mentioned on one of the previous Gilead episodes about how important it is to know what story you're in and that I personally panic when I don't know what story I'm in. And we had a lovely close reader send me a book. Um, uh, she sent it to the office and we all got a big kick out of, you know, seeing if it was like a bomb or anything. And what <laughs> 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 was it? It was a book. and It was so lovely because uh, it, the book is about it's, it's a fairy tale in which the, the main character has to figure out what, what story they're in. And it was um, I, I, the guys at the office can attest that I got all choked up and it really touched me deeply. Um, and so How that's a sweet. shout out to. It was so sweet. It's so sweet. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is she's got um, she's got a Norwegian name. So I put the uh, Cracker Jack Cersei Research staff on this to figure out how to <laughs> pronounce her name. This is how worried I was. And we practiced it. And, you know, we even had a few different like uh, the Norwegian pronunciation, which I'm not going to try to do. But um, Graham can perform that for you at some other time. He's probably like, right now saying it like, oh, how could she not get this right? So we think that her name is and just forgive me if I get this wrong, but we think her name is is Kirsten Harpen or Harpane. Um, so thank you very much and sh- total shout out to you and thank you. And you just, you don't even know how much that touched me and how much I, I needed to be reminded of the importance of figuring out what story you're in. So that was, I actually read the fairy tale out loud to everyone who was in the office and <laughs> Graham bought a copy of it on the spot. <laughs> no way. Yes. <laughs> Which book was it? It is, a, it's, um, Goldilocks and the Three Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> clever. And it was, it's very, very clever and very funny. We laughed. I cried because that's what I do at Fairy Tale. So we laughed and we cried and we looked up how to say her name. It was a great moment. <laughs> Are you going to cry? Are you Kirsten? Kirsten, yes. Yeah. I think I've seen her on the Facebook page, so she's active there. So thank you. Thank That just absolutely made my day. That was so that's incredibly great. sweet. So are you going to cry when you do the Hansel and Gretel show or Hansel and Gretel webinar? Not for 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, I mean, it's 10 bucks times however many people go, right? Yeah, times two people. So for 20 bucks, you're not getting. <laughs> All right, people, have more, more than two of you show up and Angelina will cry for you. I feel like this is turning into the office episode. Can we combine points? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk. Let's talk Gilead. Um, this is an interesting section for a couple of reasons. Oh, uh, this is my favorite section so far. I actually have something to say about it. <laughs> you've Mine had, too. You've had much. Mine too. You've had much to say about this book so far. No, but only after 
you start asking me questions. This time I have like a page of notes written. Oh, you came in with I, you came, oh, in, came with in with predetermined opinions. I know. Oh, nice illusion, David. Well, you see, here's part of it is that Tim and I have not read this book. So, like, we're faking our way through. This seems like foreshadowing, but we don't know, right? And so we've right. been saying a lot of things. And I was excited because in this section, a lot of the things we've sort of guessed at are starting to be more fully developed. So that's right. what I marked down. Well, you know, that, that brings up something interesting that uh, – who was I talking to about this? I think maybe my dad or someone here in the office. We were talking about the way good readers read especially books they've read for the first time. Mm. And one of the things you're, you're saying that you're kind of faking your way through it. And I don't, I think that's, I mean, I think that's the wrong word because it's not really true. I have been thinking about this too. I think that Tim and I have read enough that we pick up when an author is drawing our attention to something. Hopefully, right. Yeah. One thing yeah. I've, I've been thinking about this cause I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I don't want to say like concerned or worried or something like that. Those are completely overstating it. But one of the things we talk about a lot is like, I think maybe on close reads, we run the risk of trying to make too much sense of books. If that makes sense. Hmm. Does it, does that make sense? Yeah. Like I think we're trying to answer more questions than need to be answered sometimes. And I'm just throwing this out there for conversation. This is not something we talked about talking about or, or that we even, maybe we shouldn't even talk about this on the air, but I think people will be interested because I think sometimes allowing like a book to be a mystery and just being okay with asking a lot of questions and seeing what happens is the, one of the best ways to read. It's not an academic way to read, but sometimes just talking about what the mysteries could be and letting them be mysterious is sometimes the best way to let a book kind of become part of you and like grow into your consciousness. Um, and I found that even this time when I've read it, it's been several years since I've read it. So I don't even know all the answers to all the stuff that you think I know the answers to. Um, <laughs> but it, so for me, the mysteries of it are one of the most fun parts. It's like reading a, myst a mystery story in, in its own way where there's certain cues, right? And you feel like maybe you're getting an answer. Right. But getting the answer is not necessarily the fun part. It's like kind of reveling in the mystery of it is the most fun part of a mystery story. And a book like this where there's so many threads that are hanging loosely in a sense or um, characters who, who are not fully developed yet or, you know, we're not sure where she's taking us or where's the narrative or what's the plot or whatever. Sometimes it feels like trying to answer all those questions is not always the best thing to be concerned about. Um, and I'm being a little bit... You know, I'm saying I'm being a little bit like I'm not saying we're wrong. I guess so. Yeah, I'm not being I'm not saying we're wrong to talk about the things we're talking about. But I've just been thinking about this, you know, in my spare time while I was driving to the beach and so forth. David, no, I agree think... with that. I think I think different books require different things from their readers. Right. And this For is sure. not a yeah. plot. This is not a plot driven book. It's not driven by the what happened. I mean, there's you know, we've talked about what happened with Jack, but. It, as it turns out, and we learn in this section, it's really, you know, it's not like he murdered someone and, you know, this is a dig dark secret. I mean, it's kind of a run of the mill situation where he's a disappointment. Right. And uh, but I don't I don't think that, that 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 wasn't like the heart of the mystery of the story that had to be unraveled. It's very meandering and rambling. And I think that's the point is that we're just supposed to be with him in this moment and reflect on these things. So. I mean, I agree with what you're saying because different thing, different books require different things. I think this book requires a lot more of just kind of settling in with these characters, you know? Yes, definitely. Um, I think settling in, settling in with the pace of it, of course, um, is is a big part of it as well. I, I think um, that's an interesting way of putting it. Wallowing is wallowing good. 
<laughs> Tim, you were Only gonna... if I'm allowed to think it's sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could. I don't care what you think about it. Um, Angela, <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Tim, go ahead. <laughs> I, I don't think what I want you to think about a book is really going to have any bearing on how you actually think about it. I, you're a pretty independently minded person. Go ahead, Tim. It strikes me that a good book like Gilead always has a surplus of meaning rather than a small mm-hmm. amount of meaning. And so it seems like some of the sleuth work that Angelina and I are doing, um, the, the fake in it that Angelina used the word that we were faking it. Um, a lot of it is just kind of trying to determine where the meanings of the book will lie and kind of like trying to pick up threads to see if these are really substantial threads that tie this tapestry together. But until you know the end of the book, you really don't, it's really hard to locate what those, what those threads are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hunch work right now. I mean, it's yeah, kind of, yeah. it's just, it's a bunch of, it's sleuth work right now, but you're, but to your point, David, I mean, I, I wonder if that's part of the reason that, we, it might feel like we're ironing these books out too much is because we're sort of pers- we're trying to figure out what the meanings are, what the thema- what the themes are and what the kind of like unities are. And in pursuing those things, I know that I have made hunches on past shows, not just about Gilead, in which I've gotten to the end of the book and I'm like, yeah, that hunch was just I just didn't really develop the way that I thought it might. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... So I just tried to make too much meaning out of something that wasn't there. Yeah. Um, so do you do you think... Okay, so why do you use the metaphor of a sleuth to tie that into, like, for, for, for the experience of reading? Right. Well, I think it's because if we... I mean, I, I don't think that being a good reader is being a detective. So I... I I don't want to accept the metaphor that I began, but I do think it does have something akin to being a detective in that you're looking for signals and clues and you don't know which ones are the right ones. Mm -hmm. You know, like you don't, if if you see bloody footprints leading into the murder scene, yeah, you're probably sure that that's going to be a clue about like, you know, like what direction the murderer came in to do the dirty work. Um, but most of the work that we're doing as readers is not so blatant as bloody footprints leading to the scene. I, for me thus far in this book, one of the only like really bright thematic clues that we've received is we just received it in this reading. It's about the history of the young Fountain, you know, but so much of the other things in this book that we're trying to determine whether or not they're – that Angelina and I at least are trying to determine whether or not they're themes that are going to play out, they're not so brightly marked. I, I want to speak a little bit more to this this issue though because um, maybe, maybe we just need to make a couple of distinctions. Um, so C.S. Lewis says that reading literature is an experience, 
right? Mm-hmm. For, that, that is the primary purpose. We are supposed to experience this world that this author has created. And so you're absolutely right. There is a way that you can talk about a book that destroys the experience. And so when, when you're talking about we just need to kind of sit in with these characters and let it grow on us, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think what you're getting at is that you're supposed to experience it and live with that experience for a while. And it, and it changes over time and you change and, and your perception of the experience changes. And, and all of that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But there's also a way that you can talk about literature that deepens your experience of, of the book. And I hope that that's what we're doing. I hope that mm-hmm. we're not talking it to death in a way that is destroying the experience. But I hope – see, I, I use the metaphor of the travel guide. When I'm a teacher of literature, I'm the travel guide. I'm just here to, to point out the monuments, right? Give a little back and look at this and look at this and, you know, and, and let you be able to have some sort of markers as you walk around to be able to know what, what you're looking at, like what Virgil does for Dante in the Inferno, right? Because Dante is completely overwhelmed and confused by what he's experiencing. He doesn't know what it is. And Virgil just stops him and says, well, no, this is what this is. And this is who this is. And so, I hope what we're doing in our conversations is being a travel guide and, and helping to show people how they can more deeply enter into the experience of a, of a book rather than just, you know, battering it out and saying, well, in, in a sense, extracting the meaning, quote unquote, as if you can extract the meaning of a work from the work itself and then saying, like handing the meaning on a silver platter to the audience, right? And saying, mm-hmm. this is what it means. Now you can take that. You know, it's like Flannery O'Connor says, if you can, if you can reduce the, the, the story to a theme, you don't need the story. Right. Mm. And, uh, and, if, and to your previous point, that sort of tr- the nature of that travel guiding, so to speak, will vary from book mm-hmm. to book, from book to book, as, yes, because different absolutely. books demand different things of you. Um, and of course, I'm not suggesting that the way that we have been discussing any of these books is, is incorrect. I've just been thinking about this is one of those books in particular that we it seems like we've spent a lot of time saying, well, what what's she trying to do here? Why does she yeah. do this or whatever? Um, because it's not a traditional narrative. You know, it's not it's not mm-hmm. presented in a way that is you know, like most other books. I mean, there are, there are many books of this kind, but it, it is sort of unique compared to most books that people will have read. And it's been a little bit of a confusing landscape too because of that. So I think it's been difficult for us to sort of get our bearings. It's okay. been very difficult for me to, to get my bearings in this book. And I, I still don't really have my bearings. And why, well, why, why, why do you think that is? Cause I'm sure if, if that's probably true of many of our listeners, our fellow readers. I, I really do think it's because like we've discussed a couple podcasts ago, it is um, not a plot driven book and it's much more a character driven book, but in some ways it's kind of a mix between a, a, a character driven and a wisdom driven book. So much of his asides to his son are preparing him for life without him, for life without a father. And so he is trying to kind of, he's trying to prepare his son to give his son wisdom. And so wisdom, I mean, even in the Proverbs, in the Bible, so much of wisdom is applying aphorisms at the appropriate time. But the aphorisms are oftentimes, at least in the Proverbs, Without context, um, we've got a little bit more context in Gilead, and it's not strictly aphoristic. It's not just saying followed by saying followed by saying, 
but things occur to him and he brings them up and writes them down for his son. So I don't know. It's just, I think part of the trouble that I'm having is that I, it, the genre is a unique and kind of deliberately, I don't want to say foggy, but it's, it's just a little bit of a mixing of genres rather than it's strictly wisdom literature or it's strictly a novel. It's some, it's some amalgam of a, of a couple or a few different things. What, so you say it's hard, you've still not sure you have your bearings, I think was what you said, right? Yeah. What kind of bearings are you looking for when you read a book like this that, that just feel like they're not there? Well, I don't think, and I don't mean, I'm not, I'm just actually, I'm asking this out of curiosity, just for, I'm not yeah. suggesting that there is something that you well, okay. should be wrong like, to feel that way. I don't necessarily way. feel confused, but I think that some of the markers you usually have is that there's a problem to be solved in a book. Yes, yes, yes. That's a great and example. I'm not, you know, so what's the, what's the problem? There are problems. There are little, I mean, he might be dying. That's a problem, but <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it's not going to be solved. It's not like we're looking for the cure for the disease or something. Yeah. There's not, you know, usually there's a there's a, a tangle that's happening, so that so the, the plot moves forward and there's a big tangle, and then and then there's the the conflict and the crisis, and then the climax of that, and then the rest mm -hmm. of the book untangles it, and because of how he's telling the story of I'm dying, I, I don't know how it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't feel like we got a tangle and now we're gonna untangle it, right? Does it feel? It does. It just doesn't move like a typical narrative does. Can I ask? Whereas the Agatha Christie book that we're going to read, yes. we're going to know within 15 pages what the what the tangle is. We're going to know who's going to attempt to resolve it and while we know don't while we won't know who commits the murder, we'll have some resolution to the murder uh, 20 pages before the end. It's just a very crisp clear genre and it allows you to sort of like relax into it and it seems like Robinson is just not allowing us to relax into a preset motif. No, that's absolutely right. When I talk about genre and form to my high school students, one of the things I point out is that the form sets the expectations and that that enhances our enjoyment, right? So mm -hmm. when you go to a rom-com, you don't have to be worried that there's going to somebody's going to a monster's going to jump out, right? Cuz that would be if I was in a horror film. And and you're not going to have a war breakout. I'm not in a in a you know in a Steven Spielberg epic about World War II. I'm I'm not in that movie. So you can settle in and know what to expect. And there's that comfort, right? And and we don't know what to expect. Like we're trying to figure out: is there going to be is there a big deep dark secret that's going to be revealed and suddenly mm -hmm. tie all of this together? Is we we keep waiting to f I I think we keep waiting to figure out what we're supposed to expect of this. Yeah. So this is this is so interesting because if you think about it. You, may, you guys mentioned maybe the, the term relax or settle in or something like that. And I find this book, this type of book, exceedingly more relaxing to read than, say, a book that has that follows a form that is traditional. No kidding, David. No, um, that, that really, I think, says something about you as a person. So, <laughs> not, but, I don't mean that as an insult. No. Like, I, I am very, like, you know, I need the ritual. I need the form. I have to know what well, is expected yeah, of me, or I feel so desperately worried I'm disappointing and not giving what's expected. Mm. Well, okay, so, but my, but my very favorite kind of literature to read is a spy novel. Which is Talk very about which is form. Yes. Which is extremely, often extremely form-based but not but the best ones are not formulaic and i think um 
uh, one of the ones things that I'm wondering is, it's the same thing with with uh, with a rom com or, or with movies in general. My favorite, many of my favorite movies, I'm realizing, are movies that 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 are not concerned with following a set pattern based on genre. That huh. they 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 transform into something surprising. Um, or they're more than so you or loved Tree of Life. Well, I did love Tree of Life, but um, but like I think actually a better example of if we're gonna even just follow the Terrence Malick thing, I think a better of that a better example of that is the New World, or or the Thin oh, Red Line. So the both of those movies are like they seem like they're genre movies on the surface. Like they like the Thin Red Line seems like it's gonna be a traditional war movie, and yeah. the, the the New World seems like it's gonna be a historical romance, right? But yeah. they both become something different. They become something surprising, and because of the, and they 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 become deeper because of that. Um, and what I'm wondering is, in a sense, when we look at literature, and again, I'm not saying we're right, you're right or wrong, or I'm right. I'm just, you know, this is an interesting conversation. Just observing a difference. I don't think that these ideas are necessarily opposed. Well, what I was going to, okay, so what I was going to say is, in a sense, so if we're looking at Gilead and, and the traditional way of looking at literature, as you were saying earlier, with like, there's, there's certain signposts and there's a form and things like that, yeah. is that an issue with this book? with the limitations of the book or is there an issue with the limitations of looking at literature in that way that create the dissonance in, in our experience of reading a book like this? The same goes for a movie. Is it, is there a, is it, is why is it that we get a dissonance when a movie breaks away from the form that we're used to? And, and why is it that some people dislike that some people like that? And, and is that a flaw or is that a strength? Yeah. Okay, so I think that all great artists, they they play with the form. Like, they all know the form. So even if they're rejecting the form, it's very deliberate, and they're saying something about their rejection of the form. So even Shakespeare, who's very, very much has a form, but the form he created was a twist on the form of drama that had previously been there. And so he's constantly playing with the form, masterfully, and leading us somewhere. So um, I think it's kind of the idea that... Um, an end has to be uh, the the end of a movie has to feel satisfying. Like this is this is where it was inevitably going to go. You prepared me for this, but it also has to be a surprise. That's about, where the artistry about, comes. What in. about stasis though? Like the moment of stasis that can come at the end of a work of art. What do you mean, David? What? Well, like what's maybe the question it, you're asking? where maybe there's not necessarily everything's not wrapped up neatly, and, and oh. the, the story's ongoing. Yeah, I don't like those kinds of stories. <laughs> I do I, like those kinds I, of stories. I, I, okay, so I can like but them if they're very stories well done, are but like a that. lot of time, a lot of times, it, it's just it's like they. Here's how I feel about the ones that are not well done. Oh, you painted yourself into a corner and couldn't figure out how to get it out. So you just did a Deus Ex Machina, or or said there is no resolution because that's how life is. Yeah, like, but it that... can be done well. I'm not saying it can't. It can be done well, but it is often done very poorly. Well, yeah, agreed. But so is the form. So, like, so, so are things that are more formulaic. To, like, there are people who there are people who reject who don't reject the form. They just lose the form because they're not good artists. Yeah, and then there's people who really know what they're doing. Yeah, I think what you're saying is there are people who are good artists and there are people that aren't good artists. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's exactly right. And so it, it, it's 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 a bigger issue than whether the form is there or not because sometimes they just don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and sometimes they're 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 very deliberately questioning the form and the implications of the form. And I I don't hate every movie that doesn't have a tidy resolution. I don't I don't mean to suggest that. I like some quite odd things, but it has to, 
has to be very carefully crafted to to feel to feel true. That's the biggest thing, right? It's got to feel true and not just oh, you slap that in long as you couldn't figure out what to do. And I think for me, oftentimes what feels the least true is the tidy resolution. Because I, because I would say that very little, very little of our of human experience is wrapped up neatly. There's a difference between conclusion and things being wrapped up neatly. And and uh, okay, go ahead. We probably ahead. define wrapped up de- neatly a, a little bit differently. I, I would probably, agree. That can, probably. that can also feel very stifled and artificial. It's you know I like a sophisticated. Something that feels true and a happy ending could also feel not true. So well, I, I completely agree with you. And, and we talked about this a little bit at the end of Pride and Prejudice, right? Because that story is ongoing. Like there, in some of those relationships, anyway, there is this stasis this, that we don't mm-hmm. we no, don't know. Like with the sisters, I think, right? Like we're not one hundred percent sure that everyone's going to be happy. Mm. But that That's part of, that part of the story is is over. Tim, correct. You, so it you, feels satisfying. Right. Right. And that that is that is a um that that may be the word that that we at least agree on as far as how to use it is the idea of being satisfying even if well we can talk about that another time maybe we'll talk about it at the end of this book Tim go ahead what were you gonna say well I was gonna bring up New World mm-hmm. the Terrence Malick movie is mm-hmm. an example for you Do, I assume that you found the conclusion of that movie to be satisfying yes and people will have to watch the movie. Which will take it's it does take it take, movie. take some effort take some effort, yeah. But just superb, mm-hmm. superb. That to me is an example um, of what you were talking about. That like it's not really a tidy conclusion. Do you agree with that? Ooh, what do you mean tidy? <laughs> I mean uh, it, it's not all all the loose ends are not. I'm just trying to say back to you what you were saying. Um, that's usually the best way when you want someone to understand what you're saying. Just to repeat back to them what they said. <laughs> That's like the 75% of teaching, I think. I think you're right. <laughs> At least. I, uh, you know, we said that Murder Must Advertise did not have a tidy ending. So I'm, I'm not in disagreement about what yeah, y'all are saying. Yeah. I, I think it had, it had a sense of resolution, but it wasn't overly simplistic or tidy, and not every loose thread was tied up. Right. Okay, let me, let me ask you this. What, now that we're more than halfway through this book, what, what are you hoping for as far as the kind of resolution you'd like this book to, yeah. to offer? I don't know what the conflict is. I don't know what I'm hoping for. I don't either. But okay, so this is a master. She is a she has been teaching fiction writing for a long time. Oh, I definitely have the sense that she is in control of this narrative. Okay, Mm -hmm. so so okay, so we know she's a master. I don't know where she's going, but I believe that she has a a place in mind. You trust her, Angela? Yeah, it's not like when I read a bad book and I'm like, and I actually will say this out loud. I will say, "Oh, you lost control of these characters." Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. So okay, so we know she's a master. She's been teaching some of the greatest young writers who have won awards and all that uh, in all kinds of genres and forms. So we know she knows what she's doing. Yeah. So we trust her. But so, so then therefore it seems like what she's obviously doing things on purpose. Mm-hmm. But what would you like? Do you have, as you're reading it, do you have the sense of apprehension that it's not going to take us to a place that is going to be satisfying to you? Well, I mean, I guess you have that anytime you read any book, right? But I would not say that I have that apprehension uh, because I'm seeing so many recurring motifs 
And each time they're brought up, there's more to the picture. Mm-hmm. That I just I can't believe she's not going somewhere with this. Right, she's yeah. bringing these things up too many times, not not to be going somewhere with this. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I I totally trust her. I think there's going to be a resolution at the end. It's just foggy. The Agatha Christie. I know what the resolution is going to be. I just don't know who done it. Well, look, we don't have anybody to root for. We don't have a villain. Every, you know, like just the usual emotions that you feel when you're reading something. I mean, we like John Ames, but I don't know if I'd call him a hero. Mm-hmm. Right. He's not, he's not doing he's anything. Just our sh- he's like a shepherd. He's a guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a protagonist. Oh, I don't know if I'd say that. He's not out there making action happen. We don't even have like a protagonist and an antagonist. It's just none of the usual ways that you think about a, a plot developing. Well, you know what? That might segue us into this reading because couldn't you argue, Angelina, that Jack Bowden is the antagonist and John Ames is the protagonist, albeit that the protagonist is telling the story and seems like he is very, very cautious about his own um, telling of the story. He's suspicious that he is tainting the narrative with his view of Jack Bowden. He's aware of his own... I like that so much. He's aware of his own prejudices. Yeah, Yeah. right. I like that because, you know, one of the questions you have in literature is with the first person narrator is, are they a reliable narrator? And Mm -hmm. this is unusual to see someone questioning his own ability to tell this story. It is unusual. But it makes him seem that much more trustworthy. Uh Uh-huh. It sure does. Okay, so... Speaking of your segue, I want to I want to move this. So one of the reasons I want to talk about this, about the way we experience literature, and the idea of like the mystery. There's there's a lot of mystery in the way that people experience literature, and the way the way uh, literature Absolutely. kind of exists, um, and the way any given book can capture a person and not capture another person, and lead to questions and not answers, and and all these sorts of things we're talking about. Because I find it so fascinating that in this section. Um, we get both this lengthy uh, conversation about predestination, which is really interestingly not just him reflecting on predestination. It's part of a, it's, it is a dialogue, yes. which right. is rare in this book. And it's in the same section that, we've, that we're coming across uh, the, the revelation about, about Bouton himself, you know, young Bouton himself. And I know that she didn't write it with these, you know, in, these groups of pages in mind, but it fell to us that way. And I think there's also like something mysterious about that happening for us. And in this conversation about the predestination, it's so much of what he is trying to say is I'm not exactly sure how it works. This is a mystery. Yes. And young Jack is not content with that entirely. Yeah. And his, his, and Jack's wife is, or no, John's wife is sympathetic to Jack well, that scene really just highlights so many of the different things we've been talking about, right? So Jack, the, John doesn't know if he can trust Jack, yes, right? Is right. this an honest question? Are you trying to set me up? Is, are you a true inquirer into this mystery? Or are you just being divisive? And, and, but that's the question he's been asking all this time. Why are you hanging around my ha- family? Why are you playing ball with my son? Why are you helping my wife move furniture around? Like, what exactly is your intention here? And so that all comes to that head. And I don't know what the answer is. I was, I was asking asking the same thing like does he really want to know is he picking a fight mm-hmm. what's going on and then for lila to speak up and uh-huh. kind of side with him also highlighted so many of the things that we talked about in terms of him being a threat or what's the nature of that threat and exactly what's happening there 
Mm-hmm. So it, that was a very well-crafted scene in that it highlighted so many of the things that we were picking up on. I still don't know. that He's a very mysterious character. He I, is. I don't know. Was he, was he starting – was he just being a troublemaker? Starting a fight <clears throat> about predestination, which, you know, John Ames is absolutely right. That is, that is a very common fight that goes nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And people very often start that conversation just to pick a fight. Yeah. yeah anyone who's taught 17 year olds in a classical, in a Protestant classical school gets yeah. this conversation once a week. Right. And you know, it's, it's walking through landmines. So it's you, like, know, you know, there's no way to answer these questions if, you, if someone's trying to start a fight. You guys, have, you guys know about Labrie, the Swiss kind of Christian study community that was started by Francis yes. and Edith Schaefer. Yeah, yeah. There's a story that. You know, they, Labrie prided itself in addressing all sorts of questions. Everything was up for consideration. There's a story that I heard secondhand, which was Edith Schaefer said, there's only one question that we don't allow to be discussed at Labrie, and that is the question of predestination, which is additionally, if, if that is true, and I kind of believe it's true, if that's true, it's really kind of shocking because Francis Schaefer was— a devoted Presbyterian, and it's the Presbyterians. I, I, you know, probably consider myself one. Presbyterians like talking about predestination more than any other denomination or tradition. And so, for even the Schaefers to kind of say, "Yeah, predestination is just kind of it's beyond the fence of discussion," is a testament to how thorny and irresolvable that that question is. But. Angelina is exactly right. I mean, this was brought up at this time because it is a dilemma. It seems to me less about the theological. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less about the doctrine. It's it's a question about Jack Bowden, and it seems like the question is: Is he still recalcitrant? Is he still? Um, the man who John Ames thinks has not repented, or is he someone who is concerned for his own soul and wonders if he can change, wonders if he, if his lot has already been cast by God? Doesn't it seem to you like that's what the primary question is right now in this in the section that we read? I mean, that's I think I think that's there, yeah. Oh, yeah, I I do, too. And so the scene where John is preaching that sermon and Jack Mm -hmm. is in there and he says, you know, God is my witness. This was the sermon I wrote. And and I just went ahead with it, even though he was in the audience. Now, we don't know at that point that Jack has abandoned a child. We just know that when John talks about a father abandoning his child, he turns white. Now, when I read that, I thought Jack Ames was responding as a child who felt abandoned. Oh. Right? And it's only later that you flip it around uh, and realize, no, he was the father who abandoned the child. But I actually thought that was an intentional ambiguity because she keeps highlighting, is it the prodigal son that's the problem or is it the father that's the problem? And she keeps Mm. flipping back and forth between those. And because Jack Ames is named for John Ames, I thought that he was having an indictment of, you know, that, that John had failed in some way to his obligation to Jack. Huh. Hmm. Um, because, okay, so so I don't know that that's going to make as much sense if I don't kind of mention the, the, the notes I wrote down. But so I'll just 
in a couple minutes here say that, you know, what I thought happened in this section was a bunch of the things we've been talking about came to a head and really were more explicitly stated. One Mm -hmm. that we talked about in the last couple of episodes was that is Jack Bowden potentially a replacement husband and father? Mm -hmm. And the narrator has a lot of anxieties about that. We finally stated that outright, right? Like I look Mm -hmm. over, I see him sitting in the pew with my wife and child. I think Mm -hmm. about I'm going to die. And is he, so, you know, he says it. They look like a beautiful young family. That's right. So we were right about his anxieties uh, toward Jack being personal. The other thing is that we kept coming back to this prodigal son motif. And so when this section opened, I, I saw a new aspect of that, that the prodigal son motif is also being connected to the Abraham motif. Okay. Mm-hmm. See if you can follow me here. Our narrator is Abraham. Jack Bowton is Ishmael because his father says, um, Bowton says he gave him to me, so to speak, to, con- to compensate for my own childlessness. So he was an old man uh, child, yeah. and he yep. gets a surrogate child who's like Ishmael. But then later in his real old age, he gets the child of his age. He gets the young child. That's Isaac. And so there's this Isaac Ishmael tension, which is why I wondered why Jack was when, when John gave the sermon about fathers abandoning their children. If there was all if also the finger was being pointed back at him, like you abandoned your surrogate child you abandoned ishmael and and the guilt about that so you've got the chosen son the favorite son isaac over ishmael and i think that plays out in the in the two sons both being named jack and one's the surrogate son and one's the real son and in a sense it seems like this is my maybe put a little bit harshly but it's, it does seem a little bit like ames has sort of not abandoned jack bowton but he's certainly. But there's a sense. There's a sense in which you know his feelings for Jack, like he he recognizes in himself that he feels very differently about him than he would about his own son. Like older Bowton, he he recognizes in the early sec, earlier section that older Bowton forgives his will forgive his son for anything, and that Jack John couldn't forgive Jack for what he did. Mm-hmm. But then he recognizes, oh, if he, he, he writes to his son, if you if did this. If he was this, my real son. Yeah. If he was he my says, real son, I could forgive him. And, yeah, he, yeah. and he tells his own son in the letter, if he, I will love you no matter what forever. That's and right. So those, right. Like, and see, it, the sermon he's giving on 128 is Hagar and Ishmael. He's talking about Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. And then so part of the subtext of him saying, I swear to God, this was already the sermon I was going to give when he walked in. I mean, all of that is part of it. That he's Ishmael, and so he's talking about Abraham and Ishmael, and and he talks about fathers, uh, especially old fathers. He said, "Give up their children to the wilderness." Yeah, there's a lot of subtext going on here. You think? <clears throat> <laughs> and, and yeah, I'm, right. I, I imagine when I read this stuff about the wilderness and the old fathers letting leaving their sons to the wilderness and the wilderness overtaking them and things like that, I you can't help but wonder if he's he has enough experience, you know, to, to look, to wonder if his, the, the son of his age of his old age is going to fall into the same traps right. as, sure. as young Jack, younger Jack did. Well, well that's know, part of it too, right? Doesn't Ishmael goes in and, and marries the wrong kind of women. So and Isaac goes back to his own people. So there's also, you know, there's that there's that element as well. Can I can I press? I'm about to get just slightly um, theologically heretical. <laughs> I've been so. waiting for this for two and a half years. <laughs> just do it, Tim. Yeah, don't. You can't preface anything with that. 
Finally. I think Angelina, that um that motif, that makes a lot of sense to me. That that John Ames, our narrator, um, is kind of in the position of Abraham. He has this young son, the son of promise, it feels like he was mm-hmm. not gonna have, and he got him when he was very old. And then he has this other son, Jack, um, who's kind of a surrogate son to him, who's kind of he's he's gone off the path, or at least um John wonders if he's gone off the path, and he's kind of playing the role of Ishmael. Now, um, it's interesting that he brings up Karl Barth as someone who's edifying to read on the question of predestination. Um, And Karl Barth, his solution to the problem of predestination is kind of fascinating, and I don't know that it'd be edifying for our readers for me to go into it, but... um, he believes, in short, that Jesus both was the punished one and the resurrected one, and it short version leads to Karl Barth to this position where he's kind of a he's a universalist. It looks like he believes he at least hints that he believes that all will be saved at, at the end, and so I wonder if this is what John Ames is kind of toying with that maybe it is a question of is Jack Bowton if he is recalcitrant is he doomed or does the grace of God expand even to include Jack Bowton at the end of time and I wonder yes, if that's and not just, the theological okay, question is for for Marilyn Robinson that she's articulating through John Ames. I love this because this also fits with with the motif, right? Because Ishmael is is of the wrong line, right? He's the rejected line. Isaac yes, is the right. chosen line. That fits in with your predestination thing. So Absolutely. if John, if Jack Ames feels like I'm Ishmael, I'm the rejected line, then his question of predestination becomes super personal Absolutely. and loaded. And he's basically saying, are you still my father or not? Is there any chance for me to win Absolutely. back this relationship, right? So in that sense, it's almost like this twist on the prodigal son saying, can I come back? Yeah. And waiting for the father to say yay or nay. And it does. I mean, it fits in squarely with like what the New Testament uses Ishmael and Isaac as sort of like the articulation yes. of predestination. So it yes. plays that theme with perfect chords. Really does. Yeah. Yeah. So he's yeah. Am, am I elect or not? Am I am? I, is he the chosen son? Am I not the right. chosen son? Right. So, yeah, it, it puts that it puts that conversation in a whole different light. And, you know, David mentioned before that Marilyn Robinson was a big fan of John Calvin. I mean, she knows John Calvin taught predestination before predestination was cool. And <laughs> if she knows John Calvin, she knows like the the extremely thorny theological issues that are raised by the question of predestination. So I I, I don't think I ever would have seen this, Angelina, if you hadn't raised this idea that John Ames is kind of like in the role of Abraham, and we've got an Ishmael and an Isaac. I just don't—I don't think I ever would have seen that. That was a really astute observation. Oh, thank you. Well, where do you want—I've just been sitting here enjoying the conversation. Where should we go now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just want to say— 
I, I, part of me wants to go back to what we started the show with, mm-hmm. the question of kind of reading for genre or reading for pattern. It was so satisfying for me to read the backstory of Jack Bolton that he – so here it is. This is a spoiler alert. Do not keep listening unless you want to know what happened to Jack, Jack Bolton. Um, he had a daughter out of wedlock and – he apparently just kind of walked and didn't do much, if anything, to provide for the girl. And the girl's mother was apparently in really, she was living a pretty impoverished life. And the child's life was pretty consistently in danger. And the child dies at age three, gets an infection from a cut in her foot, and she dies. And meanwhile, Jack's parents and John Ames had taken significant pains to provide for the child and the child's family um, because Jack hadn't done anything. So that's the kind of backstory. Now, to go back to um, the question of kind of form and genre, Mm -hmm. it was so satisfying for me to have that information because then I kind of could go back and I revisited the sermon that John Ames preached and I thought, now I understand. Now I understand where his concerns lay. Mm-hmm. Now I, and so, but I don't know if that's actually addressing form, David. It seems like that's more just addressing the mystery kind of got unlocked and I found it really satisfying. So I, I don't know that it had much to do with form well, as we were. What is the effect of waiting this long to tell us? And why does games wait this long to reveal this to his son in the letters right so on the one well, hand it's, I think that... well on the one hand you've got his choice as as a character like well, why is he choosing to reveal it when he does to his son in the mm-hmm. course of his letters and then on the other hand you've got the choice of the author and present the narrative, pre- right. the narrative pre- i think in terms of the narrative her holding it back has increased all those themes that i just talked about like why is why is there this tension between the preacher and the guy in the pew over fathers abandoning their children? When mm-hmm. We don't know that Jack has done that. And so that's why I read it as what's happening here. Is Jack somehow accusing John of abandonment in some way? Like that was the first question that got raised, but it was, it was, it was so unclear where it was going, you know? So I, I do think that she's playing around with, I think she's playing, and this fits in with the whole, uh, you know, uh, um, predestination argument, you know, it's, it's the mysterious tension between, you know, fate and free will, right? So she's got that same tension going on between in these father son relationships of who is the one at fault, who's the responsible one. Who's, yeah. who, who, and, and she's not giving us any tidy answers to that either. I I'm thinking of this. So the question, why did she withhold this really central, event experience in the life of the Boutons and the Ames. I keep thinking about this Kierkegaard quote, life can only be lived forward. Uh, life can only be understood backwards, but must be lived forwards. Oh man. You know, and it's like we, she has withheld all of the experience that makes sense of this telling of the story. She's withheld it. Um, and part of her withholding it, it seems like it really reflects wonderfully on John Ames's 
character. He is withholding it from his son because he's so suspicious of his own motives. He doesn't want to cast dispersions on Jack. And so it shows up as a real indication that John is a, he's a caring man. He's a generous man. He is slow to judge. Um, but life can only be understood backwards. It's the thing that kind of like makes the story make sense now. Not that it was senseless before, but it makes so much more sense now having understood kind of like this big event late, it makes sense. And so we can go back and retell the story and it just, it's a lot more, uh, coherent, a lot Mm -hmm. more sensible. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I think we need to have a sponsor for Tim's weekly Kierkegaard reference. Um, <laughs> who would who would sponsor Kierkegaard? But second of all, I think one of the things um, that is really interesting is the way Ames seems to be asking himself to what degree he needs to offer grace to Bowson. because he recognizes in himself that he does not have the demands um of fatherhood right on him like truth like he he recognizes that there's not that inherent um un undying love that the father of the prodigal son has for his son Mm, mm. um within him and so he he's recognizes things about jack and so he has he says i can like he he, you know when they go to the they go to the house um to talk about the article and he yeah. says, he says, you know, I really, I knew I was going to take it back. What I really wanted to do was go over there and see how things were going or something. Um, I, and he says, I conceal my motives from myself pretty effectively sometimes, which I like. That was but, a great line. Yeah. But he also has this whole mini diatribe, if you will, about dishonor and how, um, do you remember that? Yes. Oh yeah. So they have this whole conversation and it's at the end of the section that we read he says, um, it's at the end of the section about that reveals Boughton's, you know, behavior, what happened, the story, how he right, left and right. didn't come back for 20 years and all that. He says, Jack Boughton had no business in the world, and this is on 156, involving business in the world involving himself with that girl. It was something no honorable man would have done. However, I turn it over in my mind, that fact remains. And here is a prejudice of mine, confirmed by my lights through many years of observation. Sinners are not all dishonorable people, not by any means, but those who are dishonorable never really repent and never really reform. Now, I may, mm. be, I may be wrong here. No such distinction occurs in Scripture, mm. and repentance and reformation are matters of the soul which only the Lord can judge. But in my experience, dishonor is recalcitrant. When I see it, my heart sinks because I feel I have no help to offer a dishonorable person. I know the deficiency may be my own altogether. So there's so much internal turmoil going on in him about how do I interact with this man? Do I fear him? And do I, he talks about in the previous section that we read about warning. Should he warn his family about Jack? And he doesn't know if he, if he hasn't changed, then yes, he should warn him. Can he change in his life thus far? He has been dishonorable. And there's, well, and now, but, but, but see, but it makes more sense now. It's not just a a general warning against someone of bad character. It's a warning of don't marry this guy, Lila, because he abandons women. Mm. Right. And then, and, 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 but she is the one that says in the conversation, everything, people can change, everything can change. 
Mm-hmm. And she, so she's the one that she, you know, through her own experiences or whatever, um, she has this sympathy for Jack, for people who other people think of as less than, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so Ames, it, part of the turmoil is recognizing that, that spirit, that generosity of spirit in her and recognizing the way his son responds to Jack and the way Jack actually is quite kind to them. And, mm-hmm. and then at the same time, yeah, he's afraid of what could happen if Jack replaces him because Jack, he fears is a dishonorable person. So should he, should he offer grace to this person who seems dishonorable or should he hold out hope that he can change? And it seems like he, he doesn't know what to do. And as much as anything, that is one of the great problems of the book. How, how should he, as a pastor, as a friend, yes. as a godfather, as the one who baptized this child, how should he respond to this person who he believes to be dishonorable? Knowing what he knows, experiencing what he has experienced over the years as a pastor who has interacted with dishonorable people previously. That kind of, that's one of the ter- great turmoils for me of this book and the great questions mm-hmm. that, is, that is happening. It's not, it's not a whodunit or whatever, but it is certainly a how do I respond to people like this? What is, what is charity? What is love? What does being a pastor demand of me? But also what does being a father and a husband demand of me? And well, this is, yeah, go ahead. Just, it's just this, this, this real turmoil this, these, these opposite things are pulling at him in so many different directions. And, and there's a, and it, I, it just, it seems like as he's writing these letters, he's being torn apart as he, that that's what he's trying to figure out. He, he, he doesn't want to die. He says that, but he doesn't fear it. Um, he doesn't know what heaven's like, but he's excited to see it. But the great turmoil is in, is in things like this, the things that he, the greatest interior turmoil, the things there's, there's, it's, there's a reason why he can't sleep. And he, he's having the prayer, mm-hmm. even prayer is not helping him sleep during this time in his life, during these weeks when he's writing these letters. And I think that's such a rich, powerful thing that's going on in his character right now. Anyway, I just went on that diatribe. Go on, go ahead, Angelina. I I love it, though, and I think you're right. And I think that what's happening here is that she's she's juxtaposing a great many things and and asking what is the proper response to this, right? So she's getting at some very just human things, not just things that John Ames struggles with, but all of us, right? So so what are the things she's put in tension? Well, one of the things she put in tension was war and peace, right? So sometimes there's a time to go to war. Sometimes there's a time to pursue peace, right? We all just agree in principle that these things are true. The question comes in, how do you know when is which? How do you know when... We have a character that represents each of those in his father exactly. and his, gra- his grandfather exactly. and his and father, they are respectively. At war with one another. They don't right. know how to reconcile. John doesn't know how to reconcile. We don't know how to reconcile. Right? We, how do you have the wisdom to know when is it time to pursue peace and when is it time to go to war? How and do you know when is when are you supposed to forgive and forget and when you're supposed to warn people? And of course, he also directly he, he contrasts, he juxtaposes the idea of the scribe and the prophet in this section. Uh-huh. So he's yes. following in that same pattern. And he says that the prophet's the one who loves the people and the scribe is the one who doesn't. Um, and that goes along with what you're saying there, the juxtaposition of these, of like, it's a fine line between when you go to war and when you go to peace or when you have peace. Or, do you go to peace? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> go when ahead. you pursue war and when you pursue peace. But yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Exactly. And I've seen some of those conversations on, on the Facebook page of some people's feeling uncomfortable with, you know, how far the, the father goes with peace and some people being uncomfortable with how far the grandfather goes toward war. I mean, they absolutely do represent the extremes of the poll because a Quaker is a total pacifist who doesn't right. go to war ever. Right. And the John Brown revolutionary is, you know, the most extreme radical, let's murder everybody in their bed. That's how we bring social justice around. So they're they're the complete opposite poles. They're the extreme poles of those two positions. And and John Ames is trying to sort out how do you reconcile that? And, mm -hmm. and it's shown beautifully in the fact that their relationship is not reconciled, mm -hmm. not until after the grandfather dies. And there's an attempt to sort of reconcile it all. But mm -hmm. but th these, are, these are all of the questions we have asked. And really, it all comes back to wisdom, right? That these are these are and, and love which is what you just said, love is the difference. And, and he's struggling with what's the right way to love everyone, right? I have to love Lila and my son because I have to protect them from anybody that wants to hurt them after I'm not here anymore. But I also have to love Bouton, my friend, by loving his son. I have to love and forgive Jack Ames, Jack Bouton for whatever he's done. You know, just all, how do you love people? What's the wisest way to go about that? I mean, I think most of us are just really thrashing around in the wilderness with some of these ideas too. How do you apply these things? I have no idea. Especially to the people who have either hurt you deeply or, or maybe even more so. How do you love the person who has deeply hurt the people you most love? Right. And also another thing that makes it really complicated, how do you love people that you're afraid will do harm to you or the people that you love? Yes. Which it seems to me like that's the situation that John is in. It's I think that he would not be wrestling with such passion internally if he was not afraid of what would happen with Jack Bouton after he died. If he's not afraid that Jack is going to swoop in and take his wife and kid. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. You know, I, I was thinking this week, I was visiting um, my friends and Andrew and Marianne, and I'm the godfather to their kids. I was on the porch on Saturday morning looking out over the street. They live in a quiet suburban neighborhood in Seattle. And this guy walks by at like nine o'clock in the morning and he's wearing camouflage. Hold on. We need he's a sponsor. We need a sponsor for the <laughs> weekly Tim's weekly story. Uh, brought to you by. I brought to you. I'm going to bring in all Jiffy and, and, Lube, and, the fastest oil change with the fastest rabbit trail. And, 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 and Tim's weekly anecdote. Tim's Anec weekly anecdotes anecdote. with Uncle Tim. Get your oil change while you listen to Tim's segue. Go. <laughs> Get your avuncular oil change. You please. know, you know, someone out there right now is like sitting in the waiting room of an oil change place, or like sitting in a take five, just like listening to this show while we're talking about it. Like, and their brains just exploded. <laughs> we can see you. That would be a lot to accept. Yeah, go so go on, Tim. Bye. He doesn't look particularly dangerous. He just looks misplaced. Right. Um, and I think, my godchildren, if he's a dangerous person, my godchildren are, you know, in harm's way. And so I started to ask Andrew, like, do you recognize this guy? Who is this guy? He's an outsider. Who? And I thought, you don't know the first thing about this guy. And now I have placed myself as his judge. And the reason I place myself as his judge is because I was scared for my godchildren. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I, I think that so much of – I don't think that John Ames would be losing sleep at night if he was not scared. And I think so much of the, like, the cruelest judgments that we place on people are when we ourselves are scared for ourselves or for someone we love. And so 
ordinarily, I honestly think this, ordinarily, if my godchildren were not in, if I was not worried for them, then I would have no problem just going out in the street and just having a conversation, getting to know the guy. And I wouldn't be scared for, you know, I, I wouldn't be scared about anything, but it snapped into me this, it's not like I was, it, it was a little bit of a cruelty that I found in my heart. And it was just motivated by that kind of fear. That's but it. also out of a, out of an, uh, but there was also a good side, a flip side it to that, that side. you were trying to protect. It's true. It's true. Well, you know, it's the whole mama bear thing. That's when they're fiercest, right? Yeah. And and but see, and so I think I think part of it is the exact same thing that you're talking about, where we're not sure if Jack is actually a threat. Like it would be easier if he just did something horrible right now, because then we'd all know. John yeah. would know, and then he could he knows what to do. I warn them against the bad guy, but he doesn't know if he's still a bad guy. Right. There's so much ambiguity there. We don't is know he, if he's a threat or not. Yeah, is he a threat or is he just misplaced? To borrow Tim's, to Tim's. Word. Yeah, is he coming around because really he's hoping for some reconciliation, or is he starting trouble? Or and he, home after 20 years of being abroad. I mean, that's that's kind of an evidence that he he he's probably coming home for something. Yes, and this then this is the section where John admits, I can't believe I didn't think about this before, but he's probably right. because he thinks his dad's gonna die. He's probably yeah. here out of a good sense of being yeah. there as his father leaves this world and all I can think about is hurry up and leave. So like he yeah, like there's possibly good motivations for him being there. All so I'm gonna hard say to know. all I'm gonna say is y'all need to read home and Lila. Really? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Let's add that to my list. Uh, home is actually of the three. It's the one that is the most. It's like the most closest to my heart book, as to borrow Tim's phrase, out of the three. Really, I love I love Gilead. Um, Lila was a mystery to me, and Home is the one that it was the most. I don't know. I felt like the most. It was the most. Uh, I don't know. This is going to say something about me too, affecting. but the, the most affecting to me, the one that meant the most to me. But rereading Gilead, it is, I mean, it's just, it is so rich to read multiple times. Um, even the way she heart, the way she harkens back to other things she said previously and just building all these layers. She's, this is the kind of book you talked about threads. And I think, um, you were talking about how threads come together and they like begin to reveal something, um, in, in a book. And usually that's plot based. I feel like what we're having here is we're still having threads coming together that are creating a tapestry. But it's, it's just revealing it in a different way. Mm. Um, and there's so many illusions that are bringing things to the surface and all that. And it, maybe it's popping up and it's like different threads and different parts of a tapestry popping up at, at different times. And they're all going to meet yeah. in the middle as opposed to something linear. Um, yeah. And the linear nature is what we're used to. It, it's the classic mystery story. Um, the classic spy novel or the Western, you know, the classic genre, genre novel. Um, yeah. Uh, the romance or whatever. But here we're getting it in this nonlinear nature, but it's still these threads that are popping up, creating a beautiful tapestry. And right now, half of that tapestry is created. It's just not all, maybe it's not all the bottom or all the top. And what we're going to watch is we're going to watch it kind of come from the edges in a circular pattern almost until it comes to the middle. Uh. And, until it comes to the middle and it's finished. And it's, and so you're it, saying it's, even when I get to the end of this, I'm not going to really be at the end. I have to read the other books. No, no, no. This book, this book ends on its own. It has its own ending. The other two books, David, but are they're they, amazing. Are they told in a similar fashion to Gilead? 
Mm, they're very no, they're very different. So, okay. um, well, I don't know if they're very different, but uh, Home is about Jack. So it, it's the same timeline, but it's when it's from Glory's perspective of Jack coming home to see his father. Which we know she's happy. Right. So it's, yeah, that's, so she, it starts with her arriving home and then it's got, and then it's the story of Jack coming home and all that, that means. And Ames is the peripheral character. And then Lila is about Lila (laughs) Hmm. coming to town. Um, So I am so curious about that one. I am so curious about that one. Like what brought her to town? Yeah, that one's, that one, um. I, I, as I recall, I know I know of a few people. One of which is going to be a guest on this podcast, secret guest coming up, for whom that is one of their heart books. We'll, we'll, really? we'll just tease that out there. <laughs> well, let's. We've been going for an hour and fifteen minutes. Let's um. Let's go to some final thoughts here. Um, we, you know, there, we, there's so many passages we could touch on. Um, we could read one passage and talk about it the whole time. But this was this was a good conversation. But what are some final thoughts that you have before we? say farewell angelina you go first unless you want him to go first my gut is telling me we are not going to see some of these tensions resolved because they're just the mystery of being human that we don't we don't know what the right thing to do is in so many situations so Hmm. my guess is we're not going to have a nice tidy and it was a sign from god tell or not tell and then i knew what the right thing was like it's not going to be like that he's just going to have to make the best decision he can hmm. and uh and it's you know it'll be flawed that's my guess timo from page 154 there is a tendency among some religious people even to invite ridicule and to bring down on themselves an intellectual contempt which seems to me in some cases justified nevertheless i would advise you against defensiveness on principle It precludes the best eventualities along with the worst. At the most basic level, it expresses a lack of faith. As I have said, the worst worst eventualities can have great value as experience. And often enough, when we think we are protecting ourselves, we are struggling against our rescuer. Mm. That was a good line. Great line. David, do you have a closing thought? That is a good passage. <laughs> uh, on the previous page, well, one, I guess the previous spread on page 152, while, while Jack and Ames are talking about predestination, that whole conversation comes up about being cagey. And he's like, wait, yeah. why does Bowen think I'm being cagey? But he says, to, he says to Jack, I'm just trying to find a slightly useful way of saying there are things I don't understand. I'm not going to force some theory on a mystery and make foolishness of it just because that is what people who talk about it normally do. Mm. Um, and I think, I think that that's both beautiful and instructive. Yeah. Um, and it got me thinking, that's kind of what sprung my, my thoughts about how we talk about books, because there's a fine line sometimes between allowing a mystery, like trying to force a theory on a mystery that is a book or the, or a part of a book. And, and, and in the end, it just makes foolishness of it. Um, just because that's what people who talk about it normally do. And I have in no way to don't hear me saying that that's what I think we're doing on this show. But I think that that's easy, what can easily happen with reading literature sometimes, that we, yeah. can, that we can try to force a theory on something that is meant to be experienced, that is meant to be a mystery that we, think, we just think about. And Absolutely spend, agree with that. We have to spend our life 
um, contemplating and rereading and thinking about and asking questions about. And that's why I think that the most important thing we do when we read books is we ask questions. We learn to ask the right questions and then, yeah. we, just, and then we talk about them. And there's not always a formula for um, putting, totally, a, putting, totally. a, putting a theory to a mystery. So, yeah. Because it's it's an art, and we always have to remind ourselves that it's an art. You know, one of the unfortunate yeah. things that happened in this country when when the liberal arts started to kind of fall to the wayside was in an attempt to to regain the lost prestige, the liberal arts stopped being what they were. Right? They tried to be scientific, and and to and so you have uh, you know literary theories that you want to then apply to books. I mean, that is not how you talk about art. That is not what art mm. is. You know, and they just further destroyed the thing that made art art by trying to make it all scientific and 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 you know something that could be measured and weighed and and that's i mean that's almost all they talk about now in universities is literary theory and not the literature itself no one reads literature they don't even teach those classes they just teach literary theory it's madness and so uh, you know i completely agree with you. you have to let this be art you have to let it it do what art does. Art enters you into a transcendent experience. That doesn't mean that it's completely wacky and subjective and relative. It doesn't mean any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a book's about one thing and it's not about something else. But, um, and so it's not so open ended. You could just apply whatever crazy interpretation you want. That said, though, it, it is a mystery and, and there is a way, I think. There is a way to talk about it that deepens the experience, deepens the possibility of a transcendent experience, and there's a way to talk about it that just absolutely kills it. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is what I think Mortimer Adler and C.S. Lewis and Flannery O'Connor and yes. the whole bunch are, are warning us against. And I'd like to believe we skirt that line, but cert- I, but I'm completely agreeing with you that it's something you always have to be aware of. I try to ask myself, you know, am I am what I is is what I'm doing deepening my experience or is it? You know, trying to to take it apart in some way so that I can look at it under a, a microscope, which is definitely not going to enhance my experience. Right. Yeah. One thing I realized when I was teaching a, a class of um, sen- seniors in high school one year is I, I finished the year uh, by we read uh, Jaber Crow together and we read a lot of it out loud in class, um, and it was a it was an American lit class. We were looking at how a lot of the well, it wasn't American lit. It was actually uh, 20th century lit and how a lot of the Christian authors were responding to the, the Camus and the, those, yeah. those sorts of people. And one of the things that I realized is that the way our students and the people around us experience literature is a mystery in and of itself. Like I can't mm-hmm. predict how either of you yeah. are going to respond to a book that we settle on for close reads or how our listeners are going to respond or, or how, you know, a book that I'm reading out loud to my kids is going to what what it's going to mean to them, and the the way we experience literature, the act of reading itself, is a mystery, and that's what makes it. That's why it's meaningful to us. Like, and that's why it surprises us continually, and why why we why Angelina cries at fairy tales. <laughs> mm. um, well, that's absolutely true. And and I and I think that we need that that's a good thing like that as as we as teachers as parents we need to be aware of that and also let it be that like we can't i can't make my f- five-year-old feel about a book that i loved when i was a kid the way i felt about it because it's not it's that's you know then it's right. not going to mean the same thing to him mm-hmm. and i can't make you feel about gilead or jaber crow or whatever how i felt about it when i first read it um because a great work of art can be meaningful to all of us in so many different ways um, if we just kind of let it be what it is. And that's where I think the danger of theories 
you know, theories are controllable. Works of art are not. They're, that they're, is they're, absolutely They're dangerous. True. We teach theories in college because we can control the message. When we teach literature, we can't control the message. Right. The message exists in and of itself. It's almost a spiritual thing that is going to yeah. change us and alter us and move in mysterious ways. And that's a ridiculously scary thing when you're trying to control a message. Um, and you have to, you have to, the theory will always attempt to domesticate the art. And I think good readers allow the art to always domesticate the theory. You know, hmm. it's like, the like art... give, you mean like literally give the theory or form a home. Like, is that what you, like give it a place to live? Is that what you mean by domesticate? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's always smaller than the home. It's always contained within the home. Right. You're either right. forcing a, a framework onto the art or it's already there and you're just recognizing it. Right. I, maybe right. I should use the word imperial. It's, it's, it's theory always attempts to um, – It has Impose. an imperialistic and imposing desire. And I think good art – It bucks that, doesn't it? It does buck that. It does buck, and I'm going to make what I what I hope is a is an important distinction here because uh, you know I rail a lot, and some of some of our listeners have heard me talk in other podcasts um, about this, but I rail a lot against the idea that literature is subjective because what people mean when they say that is you can make it mean anything you want, yeah. right? And that's not true, right? If you try to do a feminist Marxist reading of Gilead, you're just wrong. This book is not about the patriarchy holding Lila down. That is not what this book is about. You're <laughs> wrong. You cannot make it say that. So because words have meaning and because stories are about one thing and not another, it's not subjective. It's objective and it's our duty as the reader to figure out what the words mean. That said, the experience is mysterious right. and transcendent right. and means many different things to many different people. And those are not the two – those are not the same thing. So one, yeah. literature is not subjective. Two, it is mysterious, and that's not the same thing. And I do think you talk about the idea of signposts or travel guides or whatever. And sometimes what we're not – we're not necessarily trying to – we're not trying to tell – we're not trying to give people uh, information about – the monuments because we want them to feel a certain way so much as so that they can help understand how they feel about a book. Yes. Yes. Um, that, and that even that might be a little bit too prescriptive or limited a way of thinking about it, but I, I think it's, you know, maybe, maybe, it, maybe it's helpful. I don't know. Well, we want to help people see what's there, but we can't, we can't in any way tell them how that's going to affect them. But we might be able to help give them the questions that can help them understand why they're feeling what they're feeling. Mm. That's very true, too, because I think a lot of us have deep emotional reactions to different pieces of art and don't don't know why. I mean, anybody who has any kind of issues about abandonment from their parents, I would imagine, would be very deeply affected by what's going on in this story because you have so many troubled parent-child relationships. Right. Just like if anybody is a really rich jerk who has a hard time winning a woman, he'd have a hard time. He'd be very confused <laughs> by Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> Then Jane Austen would hold Tim. up the mirror, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's looking at you, Tim. <laughs> nah, just kidding. Tim's Wait, not a Tim's jerk. Rich? Tim may be no rich, but he's that. not a jerk. <laughs> I, I, based on my current bank account, if I've got to lean one way or the other, I'm probably more of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, my friend. You and me both. You heard it here first, close reader. <laughs> Well, hey, listen, this has been fun. We we should wrap it up here. Um, do you want to give any final thoughts to the final thoughts, or should we just move on? 
really enjoyed today's conversation, and and I, I appreciate you you diving in. I, I I really do think that it is a it's a struggle that we have to um, always keep in our mind about the right way to talk about art because literature is an art, and so it's it's difficult to talk about anything. To talk about a painting or a piece of music, you know, like music deeply deeply affects me. And then when I later read about how music is crafted and what's going on, I understand my own experience much better. But mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a way in which I could sit through a music theory class that was poorly done and it would destroy it, right? I would be so – and when is the bassoon going to come in that I would not have the experience? It's the same It's the same kind of tension. You know, it's one of the reasons why Northrop Fry says you can't teach literature. You can only teach about literature, mm-hmm. which I think is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. It is That's an interesting. Go, sorry, did you get? Did we interrupt you? No, that was just oh, okay. it. That literature is art. It can't be taught like you know history or math or science. It it has to be taught and talked about as if it's an art because that that's what it is. And and C.S. Lewis talks about the danger of treating books as historical artifacts, which I think can be a temptation when you're studying the older books, right? Like I'm going to read Greek yeah. history and look, <clears throat> it is about the Trojan War. No, it's not. It's about the human condition because <laughs> it's a work of art. Well, it's about all of it. <laughs> yeah. It's um, a great work about everything. I agree. And when we go to but, a museum and we look at one of the great paintings, choose choose one of the great, whatever great painting it is, we, the first thing we have to do is we have to stand there and look at it, right? Hmm? You can't get there and the first thing you tell your students to do is, you know, if, if the first thing you do is break it down by some scientific thing about what the painter's doing right. with light, then you haven't yeah. allowed the student to have a meaningful context for what the artist is doing with light. Like the, the the painting, the student who is an avid painter might find that interesting from the get go, but not every student's going to. And the first thing you have to get the get them to do is just look at it, and so they have a context for what you're telling them. Um, and that's hard with literature because it's long and it's a different experience. But and but you but know, it it's, the metaphor applies. On the work of literature because the, the the more removed the piece of literature is from our own time and culture, the more difficult it is to see what's in front of us. And so you need you need more tour guiding. For True. the older books than you do with something modern because you yeah, have like to help them. Dante is the very difficult for that reason. Yes, yes, right. You need you you do you do need a guide. Um, yeah. And something like Gilead, you don't have to be nearly as 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 tour guide about it because. Yeah. I mean, this is the world we live in, but you know, two thousand years from now, someone might need help to know what the heck's going on and who's John Brown and all this other kind of stuff. They're not going to get all these references and know what's right. happening and who are the Quakers and. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this episode turned into the rec- Return of the King of Close Reads. Um, Wait, what? <laughs> I didn't know what that means, end- but it sounded great. Ending upon ending upon ending. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Fair point. We're a bunch of hobbits. Like a Shakespeare death. We're, we're and now- I die. Exactly. We're now a bunch of hobbits jumping on a bed in slow motion. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we should probably go. And uh, thank you to New College Franklin for sponsoring. I you went Peter Jackson on this. I'm never speaking to you again. <laughs> Except professionally. Um, uh, thank you to you both for, for joining me for this conversation. This has been a great time. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Please remember to subscribe, leave comments, all that good stuff if you would. Join the Facebook group if you haven't yet. There's lots of great conversation going on over there. You can just type in Close Reads Discussion Group under the Facebook Groups category on Facebook and you find that pretty easily. Uh, we've got a number of things uh, in the works, both for Close Reads and all the podcasts in general that we'll be announcing soon. So just keep an ear to the ground for that. Um, we may have some new swag type stuff available and certain, you know, under certain parameters. So, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, 
be on the lookout. Uh, we are also going to be switching to a diff slightly different schedule coming up this fall. We're going to be recording on Wednesdays, which means I think we're going to run the podcast on Fridays instead of Mondays. So we'll run them on Fridays for your weekend listening pleasure. Um, and Tim and Angeline will have to decide exactly what to do with this episode. But um, in the future, uh, that's, that's what we'll be doing. So just plan your listening accordingly. Uh, and that is that is it, I guess, uh, for this week. Um, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell and close reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.